0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter. Sharing the story, living the life. For more information go to belmontchapel.org.uk This evening we're continuing our teaching series looking at the Old Testament prophecy of Amos. You may have already noticed from the teaching programme, we aren't working through this book verse by verse, but instead we'll be focusing our attention on specific passages that will I trust just help us to get to grips with the main ideas contained within the book. Specifically, the twin themes of justice and true worship. Now, if you've had a look at the teaching programme card, uh, you will have already read there a short description of this series. But this is what it says. Over recent years there have been several cries for justice in our world, whether race, gender related, social or economic. God's prophets are amongst the most powerful and effective voices ever heard for keeping religion honest, humble, compassionate and just. Among those prophets, Amos stands out as the defender of the poor and the accuser of the powerful rich, those who use God's name to legitimise their self-serving religiosity. The book of Amos calls God's people to return to true worship, centred on justice, a message as relevant today as it was when first written. And the two things that God's prophets continually spoke about were idolatry and injustice. The prophets criticised both personal and systemic injustice. They saved some of their harshest words for those who claimed to follow God whilst exploiting the poor and upholding sinful social structures. Isaiah, for example, as we're going to see later, criticised the meaningless offerings and worthless assemblies of those who failed to seek justice and defend the oppressed. The message of the prophets is clear. Worship without justice is not true worship. Now, if you've been following this series so far, you'll know that Amos was a farmer, a shepherd, living in Tekoa, a small village about 12 miles south of Jerusalem, situated in the southern kingdom of a divided Jewish nation. Amos lived about 100 years before Christ. And as we've already learned, the call he received from God was to cross over the border into the northern kingdom, into Israel, to pronounce a series of stark and uncompromising prophecies to God's people who lived there. Amos's name literally means bearer of burden, a name I think that is particularly apt given the nature of the prophetic message that he was called to carry. And as Megan reminded us last Sunday evening, at this point in their history, both the people of Judah and Israel were enjoying a period of political and military security. The foreign enemies that surrounded them geographically, the nations that we thought about in chapter one, had by and large exhausted themselves through military conflict. As a result, there emerged a political vacuum that Israel was quick to exploit for her own economic advantage. As the most powerful Gentile nations entered a period of decline, strong kings on both the northern and southern thrones on Israel and Judah expanded their territories, grabbing land where they could. And as a direct result of that, money flowed unhindered into the country from liberated trade routes. With the threat of war fading to a distant memory, the rich were becoming richer and increasingly self-centred and complacent. Listen, if you will, to how Amos describes Israel's Nouveau Riche in uh, chapter 6. This is Amos chapter 6 verses 4 to 6. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. Yet these perceived benefits came at a dreadful cost. Socioeconomic disparity had reached extraordinary levels. Social justice was virtually non-existent and the rich brutalised the poor with impunity. Lawrence Richards, writing in his book, The Bible Reader's Companion, says this. The rich, in total disregard for God's law and for their fellow Jews, dispossessed farmers from their hereditary plots of land to build great personal estates. Merchants, who used unjust weights when buying and selling grain, and who mixed husks with barley kernels, further oppressed the poor. More and more people were forced to sell themselves and their children into slavery. Justice was for sale to the highest bidder. But it's not only the creation and the enjoyment of wealth that proves popular, so too, it appears from our reading, is religion. The people of Israel flocked with unerring regularity to the places of worship. Yet the sum total of all the outward trappings of their religious fervour doesn't fool God since their motivation is unmistakably selfish. Which leads us um, right to our passage for this evening. Now if you're listening to this on the podcast, the passage is Amos chapter 4 and it's the first uh, 12 verses that we're going to be reading together. Now, this particular section emphasises the dangers that are inherent in self-centredness. The Dutch poet Piet Hein uh, rather ironically pens these words. People are self-centred to a nauseous degree. They keep on about themselves whilst I'm explaining me. So let's unpack uh, something of Amos's words, shall we? There appears to be four themes that tie in loosely with the basic pattern of accusation and judgment. Uh, that shapes these verses and we're going to consider them briefly in turn. First of all, then self-absorption, verses 1 to 3, self-deception, verses 4 and 5, self-delusion, verses 6 to 11, and self-reliance, verses 12 and 13. Firstly, let's jump right in, shall we? Self-absorption, verses 1 and 3. The chapter opens with what appears to um, our sensibilities, at least, a particularly rude and demeaning insult aimed at the wives of the men of influence within the ruling class. Amos uh, 4, verse 1 says this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. And whilst we would, of course, quite rightly, I hope, not choose to call women cows, Amos's inclusion of the term, whilst pointed in its intent, isn't as rude as we might imagine. The region of Bashan was famous for its large, well-fed cattle. It was a particularly fertile strip of land that produced both the finest crops and the choicest livestock. Bashan was the breadbasket of Israel. The very best of the choice lambs and fattened calves that we just spoke about from Chapter Six would undoubtedly have come from Bashan. But as we know from observing cattle grazing across the Devon hillside, for the majority of time, cows have their heads down grazing, oblivious to what's going on around them. They, like the women in verse one, are singularly self-absorbed and are completely unaware of their inevitable fate. And it's clear from the passage that these women have an over-inflated sense of entitlement. Their sole focus is to have every whim met, regardless of who might suffer in the process. So here are the divas of their day, totally self-absorbed. Their only focus is luxury. And God's accusation through the prophet is that these women, and by extension their husbands, the men of influence and power within the society, have only grown rich through their oppression of the poor. And in what is most likely a deliberately ironic prediction on Amos's part, he states that these women would be dragged into captivity through the broken walls of the city. Now, in fact, the the Hebrew verse 2 is is actually a little bit obscure, and commentators appear to offer two interpretations. Firstly, maybe it is that the women who would be caught like fish in baskets, or secondly, these women would be literally pulled along with rings and hooks in their noses and mouths like cattle. The Assyrian army, who several years later would invade the land of Israel and overrun the capital city of Samaria, were notoriously cruel. In 2 Chronicles we learn of the fate of King Manasseh, the king of Judah, the king of the southern territory. This is what happens at the hands of the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser V. This is what we read, 2 Chronicles, chapter 33, verse 11. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. So either interpretation would seem to be appropriate, as both signify the impossibility of escape. And we, just like the people of Amos's day, live in a culture that is defined by self absorption, a trend that some psychologists link directly to the steady rise of mental health issues and personality disorders. True worship, says Amos, isn't found in self absorption. Rather, self absorption results in self worship, where acquisition, as we commented in the first part of this series, becomes the sole driver. The people of Amos's day simply look to themselves looking down instead of looking around and most importantly forgetting to look up in their worship of God. Jesus as we mentioned in the opening talk in this series when once asked to distill right living into a few sentences in an interaction with those from the religious elite of his day offered this reply. This is how Mark records these events Mark chapter 12 verses 28 to 30. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So right living, says Jesus, is the pursuit of God and the pursuit of good. Neither of which the people of Amos' day were looking to follow. And the message for us is the same, since we are, if we want to be wholehearted disciples of Christ, following the same agenda. We too are called to pursue God and pursue good. Secondly, Amos talks about self-deception in verses 4 and 5. Amos's words in verse 4 are bitterly sarcastic. The worshipping life of the people of Israel had become superficial, it had become self-exalting. So in this mocking tone, he says this. Go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. And in words that are a parody of the usual priest's invitation to gather to worship, Amos taunts the people. Now both Gilgal and Bethel were important places historically. both were associated with faithfulness and spiritual renewal. The patriarch Abraham built an altar to God at Bethel, after having heard God say, "I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you," story that we read about in Genesis 12. And several times, the people returned to Bethel to reconnect with God and his covenant. Gilgal was similarly important. It was there that Joshua commemorated Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and the covenant of wholehearted worship was once again reaffirmed. Listen to these words Joshua chapter 4, 19 to 22, and then verse 24. This is how the writer of the book of Joshua records the events. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask your parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. But rather than venerating these spiritually significant places, Amos mentions them in the shocking context of a degraded, half-hearted observance of worship, which barely reaches the level of lip service. Herschel Hobbes, writing in his commentary, has this to say. The Bible contains no more bitter denunciation of meaningless religion than Amos 4 verses 4 and 5. Come to worship and sin, is the prophet's cry. The people worshiped God in ways that appealed only to themselves, not in ways that God approved. Their religion was self-centered. And it may be that when you look into your uh, Bible, the one that you're reading from, Uh, you see that uh, that years are replaced by days at the end of verse four which actually makes sense in the context of amos's biting satire he appears to be saying that even if you were to bring the yearly tithe required by the law twice a week it wouldn't make a scrap of difference god knows there is no sincerity in the people's worship they're merely going through the motions The Apostle James uh, talks about faith without works as being dead. But here is a case of works without faith. Amos' contemporary Isaiah makes a very, very similar observation right at the start of his prophecy. Listen to these uh, words. These come from Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to read from uh, verse 11 down to verse 15. This is what God says to the people through the prophets. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations... I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate them with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. And I think there is within this a stinging critique of a very modern call. We need to return to sincere worship, to strip away the veneer of performance and people-pleasing and replace it with the wholehearted pursuit of God, the pursuit of God in all his mystery. German-American philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich talks about the need to pursue the God above God, the God who is far greater than the God of convenience we have fashioned for ourselves. And then thirdly, we see evidence of self-delusion. Look at the verses from verse 6 to verse 11. In these verses, Amos reminds Israel of the many disasters that have fallen the nation. Hunger, famine, drought, blight, mildew, locusts, plagues, military defeat and devastation. But, says God through Amos, even though, look at verse 11, even though you were like a burning stick snatched from the fire... Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. The people of God are living lives denying the truth of the evidence that's all around them. And the list of evidences contained in these verses isn't arbitrary. The words come from the covenant established as Sinai, the thing that we read about in Leviticus 26, words that the Bible records as having been publicly read at various times in Israel's history. And the purpose of Amos' repetition of the covenant is to provide an authoritative context for his message. He appeals to legal precedent, consciously invoking God's relationship with Israel. The truth, says Amos, is staring them in the face. God isn't pernicious in his judgment. The blessings of the covenant are dependent on both parties sticking to the agreement. So the people need to stop being deluded, and accept responsibility for their actions. And now says Amos, is the moment to reflect. The moment to reflect on their sins of the past and to commit to a faithful future. Amos's message is very simple. As we're going to hear next week in chapter 5, God says, seek me and live. And surely the message that we need to hear is not that we should seek God in some things, but rather that we should seek him in everything. And then finally, we learn of the people's self centeredness That's expressed in the last section, self-reliance, verses 12 and 13. This is what Amos says, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns darkness, dawn to darkness, and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. Don Carson, writing on this passage, says this, The uh, the idea of meeting God looks back to Exodus 19, verse 17, and the giving of the law on Sinai, the place where both grace and law were combined in one revelation. And whilst there appears to be very, very few glimmers of hope in these chapters of the book of Amos, there is something intriguing, I think, about the prophet's insistence that, as a result of the people's failing to acknowledge him, God now chooses to send a new revelation of himself. And the final two verses contain a wonderful summary of God's power and his character. It is God, says Amos, who first and foremost is Israel's God. He is the God who brought their ancestor Abraham from a distant land and established him in Canaan. He is the God who took Jacob and his family into Egypt as a small people, and then who subsequently brought them out of Egypt as a great multitude. He is the God who redeemed them from slavery and called them into a covenant relationship with him. He is the God who made them into a nation. The God who loves them. He is their God. He is our God. Secondly, notice, he is the creator God. He forms the mountains and creates the winds. The two verbs forms and create are the same two words that are used to describe God's creation of the earth in Genesis. So, taken together, they evoke God's absolute control over creation and his willingness to be involved even in the dust of life, since the verb create is the exact same word used to describe God's creation of humanity, of Adam. The word for wind, of course, is synonymous with breath and spirit. So here is the God who not only gives life, but also sustains it. And thirdly, he is the God who reveals himself. How could the people of Amos' day have forgotten? How could they have forgotten the Lord God who so graciously revealed himself to them? Through the law, through the prophets, through his power and might in rescuing him from their enemies. The final verse, which many commentators see purely in terms of subjugation and judgment, does, I think, provide another glimmer of hope. There is an intimacy and a nearness in the Creator's preparedness to share His thoughts with us and to walk alongside us on the very earth He created. And yet, of course, this kind of God is hard for us to comprehend. It's no wonder, is it, that the psalmist wrote in Psalm 8, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? mortals that you care for them which is the very reason of course why in his great plan of salvation God sends his son to share our humanity and whilst we are quite used to uh, learning about people with great power as well as those who show great care those two qualities are, are very rarely found in one person and yet the God who we worship the one who chose to share our humanity combines both utmost power with intimate care. Now, of course, removed from the socio-historical context of Amos chapter 4 by more than 2,000 years, it is difficult for us to appreciate the prophet's anguish and the sheer dread that must have accompanied Israel's realisation of imminent divine judgement. But there are themes that remain relevant to all people for all time. Firstly, I think there's the message of social justice. We have a duty of care to all people. Since, as Megan reminded us last week, God has no favourites. Secondly, there is a message of humility. When we experience God's blessing, how do we respond? Do we respond in worship and thankfulness? Or instead, do we respond in an attitude of self-satisfaction? Thirdly, there's a message of personal responsibility. We're called to represent God in this world to be a light to the nations, not, as we thought about in uh, the first part of this series, not like the nations. We're called to be distinctive, to be salt and light. And fourthly, there is this message of sincerity. Because when our worship becomes automatic, it ceases to be personal and meaningful. Our obedience means nothing without a wholehearted devotion Christ and finally there is this overarching I think message of communion God's desire is to be in relationship with his people those he calls by name and sharing communion together as we're about to do here in our evening service reminds us of the very bedrock of that relationship it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that is what we're going to remember and Chris is going to help us do that as we move towards communion together.